0: In our epistle lesson, Paul wants us to become so totally transformed by Christ that we become members of a new creation. When you hear the word creation, it takes us back to Genesis. From the beginning, God dreamt that humans and God would work together. God then brings this new creation into existence in Christ by way of incarnation and crucifixion. Crucifixion is what reconciles us to God. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to God's self, and Paul says that we have a purpose and we have a mission to be reconcilers. So, if you would take your bulletin cover and take a look at it, we talked about this text in Bible study this week, and I said it reminded me of when I was a student in London, and at the subway, they would always say as the train was pulling in, Mind the gap! Mind the gap! And any of you who have ever ridden a subway in various places of the world may have heard that because there's a gap, as you can see here in the picture, between the train stops and where the platform is, and if you fall into that gap, that will not be good. So, you mind the gap. And I thought about that as the words of Paul spoke to me about how Christ is the bridge between the platform and the train, there is no gap any longer. And if you would listen to these beautiful words from Paul, there's some amazing theology here, too. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 19. From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, no longer. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to God's self through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to God's self, not counting trespasses, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. 2 Corinthians was written by Paul, to a church in Corinth, Greece. The Corinthian church was a really messed up church. But Paul loved this church. And he says the people are very, very dear to him. John Calvin would write about this church in Corinthians in his Institutes of Christian Religion, these words. Among the Corinthians, no slight number had strayed away. In fact, the whole body was infected. There was not only one kind of sin, but many. They were not light errors, but frightful misdeeds. There was corruption everywhere, not only in morals, but doctrine. What does the holy apostle by whose testimony the church stands or fall do about this? Does he seek to separate himself from such? Does he cast them out of Christ's kingdom? Calvin continues, God does nothing of the sort. He even recognizes and proclaims them to be the church of Christ and the communion of the saints. Paul wanted this church to get it right, Calvin concludes. What happens when one becomes a Christian? What changes in one's life? The short answer would simply be uh, everything, everything. But specifically it comes down to relationships. A changed relationship with God, a God with no gaps, means a change in the way we see every human in the world. Following Jesus is about looking at every single thing differently. If we really want to, as the church says, to change the world, then we have to start with changing our perspectives. We change the way that we look at other humans. Paul writes, from now on, we regard no one according to a worldly point of view. There are so many ways to look at people. And how often do we do it in a very superficial way? what they wear, what they drive, where they live, where they went to school, how much power they have in the community, how much influence, how much money. And none of those things are what define what a human being is. Secondly, you change the way you look at yourself. And we often look at ourselves through the lens of those same cultural values. We measure ourselves to see how we stand up to all those people we see on our screens. Money, power, body image, status. And then we establish our own value, our sense of ourselves, based on somebody else. I was really struck this week. Plato once said that you take the spiritual temperature of a society by listening to its music. So every semester I talk to my students about that. Tell me about the music you listen to. What does that say about the spiritual temperature? And students, they educated me. They told me that almost all the music they listen to is about money and power and status and what kind of clothes you do- wear and what kind of car you drive. I'm like, there's music about car, what kind of car you drive? And they laughed. They were like, where you been, darling? Um, they didn't say that, but I, I, I could tell. Like, this is how our culture assesses a human being. But if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The theological term for that is regeneration. We go from being dead to alive. And did you hear that in what our readers read to us this morning from Luke 15? The theme comes up again here in the epistle lesson. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to God's self and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Ah, sometimes this is hard for me to remember. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. I I kind of emphasize that a lot, I think. um, That somehow if I can just be good enough then I'll be alive. Jesus came to make dead people alive first, and then those people become good. When we really look at ourselves, we see that we are either dead or alive. What do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And I don't mean the aches and pains of growing older. I mean the spirit, the soul. Think of the story of Lazarus in John 11. He was dead for four days. When Jesus said, roll the stone away, practical Martha says, you got to be kidding me. He'll stink. Of the KJ Beaver. He, will, he shall stinketh. That's it. He shall stinketh. <sighs> so as a new creation, when you come alive, you shall still stinketh but at least you're alive, and you'll take a bath every day for the rest of your life to take care of that stinketh problem, and we call that sanctification in theology, the process by which the stink slowly goes away, and we become more and more alive, and in becoming more alive, we become more like Jesus, and we see the world and ourselves, differently. I read a quotation this week. It's probably an old one. I just read it. Dead fish go with the flow. It takes live fish to swim upstream. Are you dead or alive? Live fish swim upstream. This new creation in Christ Having been reconciled to God through the crucifixion is what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And it's not, just, it's not just church words. The ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of building bridges, wherever we are, in our families, in our relationships, in our work, between imperfect people and a holy God, that is our work. Back to Lazarus. He still stinketh. But God doesn't count our stink against us, and we need not be afraid of the stink of others. I had a great opportunity this week to preach on Thursday night downtown at 425, and it was a joy to be able to do that with my friend Christy Love. And every time I am with Christy, I think to myself, is there a better, more Jesus-loving human on this planet? And she has no ability to smell the homeless because that is not how she sees that. Everyone stinketh the same. And then we have this amazing statement in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's the church's purpose. It's my purpose. That's your purpose. How have you been changed by Jesus? How would you answer that question? If we passed the microphone around, and we're not going to. But how would you answer that question? How have you been changed by Jesus? Priest and Professor Henry Nowen was chatting with a colleague in her office when he saw a replica of a painting hanging on the door. It was an older man wearing a large red cloak, tenderly touching the shoulders of a disheveled young man. And now one was drawn to the intimacy that he could see between the hands and the shoulders, the way, the way the man was touching him. It was a reproduction of Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. The story that we read earlier. Rembrandt's painting represents the yearning of the human spirit to return to a real and lasting home where we can step into the arms of a divine parent who wants to hold us in an eternal embrace. Now fascination with the painting continued, and at one point, he was able to go to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg and actually see the eight-foot by six-foot painting. And as I read about this, I thought, oh my goodness, I had the good fortune of being at the Hermitage in the late 80s, and I don't remember that. And I'm so sorry that we don't keep those things in our, in our memories forever. But the impact that it had on now and now has an impact on me. Rembrandt was near death when he painted this masterpiece. It was a powerful statement the way that Rembrandt painted it of his own tumultuous life. The young Rembrandt had seen himself as the reckless young man. He had seen himself as a man who was after all the wrong things. He was after fame and money and power. And his early self portraits reflect that. David Brooks the columnist, who you probably know, wrote a column disagreeing with American graduation speeches. And as we come upon that time of year again, I am, I'm thinking that, that Brooks is probably right. He noted how most of our graduation speeches say things like, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams, find yourself. Brooks writes, This mantra misleads on every front because becoming an adult is not primarily about finding freedom and autonomy, but rather finding serious things to tie yourself down to, making sacred commitments. Brooks concludes, the purpose of life is not to find yourself, but to lose yourself. Jesus drove home the same point 20 centuries ago when he said, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. The heart of the prodigal son story is about a parent determined to love their children despite all of the risk involved. Love always makes us vulnerable. Love always exposes us to the pain, the pain of rejection, the pain of betrayal. But the parent in this story loves anyway, because it is who they are. This morning, for a nanosecond, may we grasp how deeply we are loved. Amen.